Thanks for joining us on AutoLine this week, where we're going to be talking to the author of a new book called American Icon, all about how the Ford Motor Company turned itself around, especially through Alan Mulally. And the author of that book is Bryce Hoffman, joining us here on AutoLine this week. Bryce, great having you here on the set. Thanks, set. John. Appreciate you having me. Also joining us today, Keith Naughton from Bloomberg. Great having you back, Keith, as Thanks, always. John. And Jim Hall from 2953 Analytics. Great having you here, Jim. Good being here. So, Bryce, I'm sure you learned a whole lot of things uh, about the Ford Motor Company in writing this book. Was there any one thing that you can point to right now that stands out that you went, wow, I, I had no idea that was going on at all? Yeah, John, I mean, I, I had covered Ford as, as the Ford beat reporter for the Detroit News through much of the time that's covered in the book. Uh, I started covering Ford in 2005, and I thought I knew pretty much everything there was to know about this story, and I was amazed during the year I took off to research this book how much I didn't know. Probably the most interesting thing that I learned personally was uh, Ford had a secret alliance with Toyota and Honda that basically was put together to prop up the North American supply base during the, the depths of the Great Recession. So this is 2008 or th yeah. thereabouts when everything's starting to melt down, still before the bankruptcies. But t explain, I'd never heard this, Toyota and Honda and Ford doing what? They, Ford called it Project Quark. It, they, they had a secret war room. That Quark, they, like the super subatomic exactly. uh, particle. Yeah, and um, they had a secret war room set up uh, in, in uh, uh, the Product Development Center, actually, campus in Dearborn, where they had daily conference calls with their counterparts at Toyota and Honda and basically were monitoring in real time the suppliers in the U.S. that all three companies depended on. And, and because take, suppliers were in a meltdown at the same exactly. time. Exactly. And in many ways, it was worse than the situation the, the automakers were facing because they, they, they had so much less uh, cash reserves. Uh, they, ran, they always ran the business very close to the wallet. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and, and Ford realized early on that, uh, that the government was not in a position to pick winners and losers in this, in this whole dilemma that the industry faced. And so they reached out to, to the other automakers and, and made common cause. They, they talked to General Motors, too. And General Motors was uh, of the opinion that this was antitrust violation and didn't want anything to do with it. They initially tried to talk to Chrysler, too. And Chrysler was falling apart at the time and got to the point that Ford didn't even know who to call at Chrysler at that point, they said. But uh, Toyota and Honda, and to some degree Nissan, were very interested in doing this. They, they are very dependent, as you know, on, on the same, many of the same suppliers, particularly for their operations in North America. See, that's a key point. I, do, I don't mean to interrupt, but a lot of people don't realize how precarious everything was. And that's why the bailout really did happen, because if Chrysler had gone down, it would have dragged a whole bunch of suppliers with it, shut the whole industry down. That was what Ford was most concerned about. You know, they, they made the decision not to, to take part in the government's restructuring of the auto industry. They made the decision not to take a taxpayer bailout, but they were very supportive of the aid to General Motors and Chrysler because they knew that the worst thing that could happen to them was to have the whole industry kind of go into an uncontrolled collapse, and they wanted to avoid that at all costs. Did they do anything to immunize themselves from antitrust when they did this? They had their antitrust lawyers sitting literally at the table monitoring these phone calls, and, and, and there, were, there were instances where you know, those lawyers stepped in and said, well, we can't do that. But, Otherwise, it'd be called collusion. Well, exactly. exactly. Gather to set prices yeah. and that sort of but, thing. But they, but they didn't actually uh, make the FTC aware of this while it was happening. No, they, they, but they did make the suppliers aware. That was something that was that 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 was required under U.S. law, as I understand it, was that that to avoid this being an antitrust issue, they had to inform the suppliers. Look, we are talking about you, with with your other clients here in the room, and they, you know, it really came down to horse trading. You know, they would make. 
you know, they would tell Toyota, for instance, look, this, this supplier X is critical to us. We're worried that they can't make it on the business that we're giving them alone. Can you give them some work? And in exchange, we'll, because, you know, they, there's multiple sourcing for a lot of these components. Automakers want to have more than one supplier building key parts. So then they would say, if, if you, Toyota, give them, you know, secondary work on this, we'll give our secondary sourcing to this supplier that's critical to you that's also up against the ropes. And they went through, you know, like this in real time, and uh, nobody had a clue this was going on. Bryce, I was uh, interested in the, the things you had about the Ford family and the inner workings and Bill Ford's interaction with the board. And, and one of the things you have in there is that the board was pressuring Bill really to step aside in essence. And I'm wondering if he hadn't had the wherewithal to do that, what might have happened? That's a really good question, Keith. You know, uh, the, the kind of narrative that, that we've all heard in, in, in Detroit over the past few years is, is that Bill recognized that he couldn't do this and, and, and made the very heroic decision to, to step aside. And, and I don't want to take away from what he did because, because it was a very difficult decision. But it was a decision that he came to with the help of the board um, very clearly. And, you know, there was a feeling on the board that, that, that to get the right person in the CEO's job to save that company, Bill really needed to take a big step back. As, as you guys know, Ford had courted uh, Carlos Ghosn from Nissan. They'd, co they'd courted Dieter Zetsche. They had tried to get some of the rock stars of the auto industry to come over. And in each of these cases, the stumbling point was, was that, that these guys didn't want to work with Bill Ford. They wanted to run the company themselves. And at a certain point in, in, in the middle of 2006, when the situation was getting very dire, when, when there was literally talk of bankruptcy on the table, there was talk of, of, of parting out parts of the company. The board, uh, a senior board member, Irv Hockaday, who was kind of the, 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 the senior member of Ford's board of directors, had a real grandfatherly conversation with Bill where he said, look, I think we're at the point now where for everybody's good, you need to step aside. And I think that, that Bill, from what I understand, was relieved by that to some degree because he had so much on his plate by that point. He was the CEO, he was the chairman, he was the president. And, and I think that uh, it actually was kind of, it was opening a door for him that he then walked through. But it was a little bit different than the kind of narrative that, that we've... Well, and you described the speech he gave to the board that was essentially his resignation speech, right? It was. And, you know, I, I, one of the board members that I talked to said that it was one of the, the most moving things they'd ever heard in, in a boardroom. He, you know, the, the thing that he said famously is, I have a lot invested in this company, but the one thing I don't have invested is my ego. And, you know, he, he didn't. He stepped aside at this critical time and made way for someone else to come in. And, and simultaneously they're finding, they're finding Mulally, right? And that's yeah. someone else is Alan Mulally. Yeah. And I mean, you just gush about him in the book. Of course, <laughs> so does everybody at Ford. I, now, and, and you finished the book about a year ago, is that Or started yeah. writing it a, a year ago, I should say. Yeah, I, I finished the book uh, actually uh, last summer. Do, do you get a sense now that maybe things are still evolving at Ford? I, I'm wondering if everybody is at the board level, as enamored of Mulally as they would have been when you first started writing. And the only reason I mentioned that is uh, there's some problems at Ford right now. Europe's a big mess. Mm -hmm. Latin America went from making a whole lot of money to losing mm -hmm. money, and nobody's picking up much on that. They had this big black eye with sync. You yep. know, this was their electronic saver thing to separate them. 
Consumer Reports just oh. clobbered them when the thing didn't work as uh, appropriately. I'm, I'm trying to get a sense right now. Now that you've finished the book, sure. you've digested it all, what's your sense now of Mulally at Ford? I think that the board is every bit as enamored with Mulally as they were uh, a year ago, two years ago. Uh, the, the thing is, and, and this is a point that I try to make in the book, it's not that, that Mulally has solved all of Ford's problems but he solved the existential problems that were confronting the company. When he came in, Ford was fighting for its life. It was an open question whether this company was gonna be around in five years. It was an open question whether there were gonna be Fords on the road today. He answered that question and he, and, and he took them off life support and, 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 he, and he revived the company. Today, Ford is dealing with the same sort of challenges that any manufacturer deals with. You know, the, Europe is, is, a, is a crisis for all the world's automakers right Except now. Except Volkswagen. Well, we'll see how things shape up this year. I mean, it's, it's, it's a challenge for Volkswagen, too. Volkswagen the group. Ah, yes. Because it's Ford the group, too. I mean, we're talking about Ford. The, the truth is, if Ford were just judged by a single market, depending upon which one you pick, they'd be at the top of the pile or the bottom. But one of the so, key things that Mulally really insisted on was, was this balanced approach to Ford's global operations. Ford, as you guys know, had historically been divided into, into these regional operations that, that didn't share a lot of, of architectures and didn't share a lot of operations. But historically, Ford has been very much a chimney company. That's what Ford 2000 under Trotman was about. I mean, those cars were developed almost like by separate car companies, for gosh sakes. Yep. So the, the whole idea of, of getting the, to be an integrated company, to me, that's something that it shows that when you do it, you have a tremendous amount of synergy. But Ford did it by shelling and getting rid of brands. They did it by shelling and getting rid of brands, but they also did it by breaking down those chimneys, Jim. They did it by, by destroying the, the walls that were around the fiefdoms of, of senior executives. You know, I, I think the, the biggest thing that, that Alan Mulally did at Ford Motor Company was to change the company's culture. And, and, and Ford's corporate culture was one of the most noxious in the automobile industry. This is a place where, where, where executives put the advancement of their own careers and their own divisions ahead of the bottom line, ahead of the success of the company as a whole, where people made product decisions purposely to undermine their rivals, you know, in other divisions of the company. And when Alan came on, you know, I, I remember some of us asked him early on, you know, do you, because there's a lot of talk in the auto industry, as you all remember back in 2006 and in, in early 2007 about mergers. And, uh, you know, the question was put to him at an early press conference, you know, uh, are, do you have merger plans? Are you looking for a merger partner? And, and Alan said, yes. We are going to merge, and everyone. We all whipped our notebooks out, and he said, "We're going to merge with ourselves." ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> and it's you know it's true though. It's yeah. it sounded kind of kind of schlocky, but it, it so much goes to the heart of what he did at that company and what needed to be done because the, the economies of scale that Ford has been able to achieve compared to where they were at before he came are phenomenal. But the only way he could get at those was to to get people to work together. And I think that that's one of the big themes of this book. And it's why I think it, it's of interest to people outside the automobile industry too, is that, that what he really focused on was creating a culture of collaboration. And that's something that I think is it, really been well, and, and Bryce, I covered Ford 2000 yeah. back in the 90s. It was a colossal failure. Um, they tried before and they couldn't get it done. Why could Mulally get it done? I think that the, the reason he was able to do it was a couple of things. One is, is 
the force of his personality is something that you can't underestimate. We've all we've all dealt with him. We've all seen it in action. Um, he's not somebody who who these guys could kind of BS uh, into submission like some of his predecessors. But I think more than that, he'd already done it before. He'd already run a company that was truly global and that that operated on a global scale. So he knew he knew how to do it, and he knew when it wasn't working. And he really just kind of in, went through the whole organization and kind of said, "Well, why why do we have?" three engineering centers here doing the same, doing work on small cars. Let's just have one, you know, and, and why do we have work on these vehicles being duplicated at two facilities around the, the world? Let's just have one. And, and I think that he had some, it's important to say that while he led this effort, you know, there are some people who, who played huge roles and who, who, who deserve a huge amount of the credit for, for helping him achieve this, not the least of which is Derek Kuzak, the head of product, global product development, who was one of the first people that he kind of identified as someone who could help him turn the company around. And, and Derek had been trying to do this sort of thing for years in the company and had been advocating for it. But wasn't it his biggest strength the fact that he did come from outside the organization that allowed him to go in and be a lot more analytical about it because he had a different view? If you had grown up in that culture, and, and I would add one critical element, too, and uh, Alex Trapman, the former chairman, was putting together the Ford 2000 plan to organize Ford on a global basis. They were making money hand over fist. This was the late 90s. SUVs were flying out the door. No crisis. As opposed to when Alan Mulally came in and they were bleeding red ink and everybody recognized they were in a crisis. Finally, even the UAW got that message, too that I think that made things a whole lot easier. But, but one thing's been in a crisis before. And not has to this extent. Well, that's and they never saw the light like they did this time. Right. You know, if you look at, you know, they, they had an awful problem back in the, in the uh, late 70s, then again in the 80s. And it was almost like they were bandaging, uh, you know, a, a sliced wrist. So why this time? Was, why, why did it happen this time? Because they got so close? Because they got so close. I mean, I mean, I think John's point is, is absolutely true. I mean, this, this, Ford had been in crises before, but this was so much worse. And it was so clear that this was the real thing. And, you know, when, when, when Ford took out, as, as Alan likes to call it, the biggest home loan in history, their, their $23 billion financing package. Home improvement loan. Yeah. Home, equity, home equity loan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that was really... That was really kind of pulling back the curtain for everyone in the company to see because because the writing was on the wall then that if we don't make it this time, we don't even own the blue oval. That's right. They don't they have the mortgaged anymore. everything. They're gone. So this this was this was this was clear to everyone from that point on in the company that either you get it right this time or everybody goes home. And you know, I I think that, that that was critical and you know, you did need that sense of urgency to impel everybody. You needed it to get the UAW to the table. You needed it to get the suppliers to the table, to get Wall Street to the table. But, you know, it, it's without the leadership and without the plan and without the clear vision um, that I think you're right, I think came from, from being an outsider and being able to take a sober look at this company, which a lot of people, you know, who've grown up in this town, they, they kind of can't see the forest through the trees type of thing. I mean, when <laughs> Mark Fields was put in charge of, of Ford's America's group, he talked about Every, a lot about uh, matching production to demand. We heard that a lot. But the reality of the situation was that the people in charge of Ford at that point couldn't bring themselves to admit what the real demand was, how low it had fallen. So when they tried to match production to demand, 
they couldn't really bring themselves to cut production to the level that it really needed to be cut. Mulally came in and he looked at it. He 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 didn't have any emotional attachment to, to these products. He didn't have any history with the with these plants. He could see where the demand was going, and he cut and he was able to 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 you know push through the cuts that were actually needed. Go ahead. Well, you have some also fascinating interplay on the executives who are trying to get this done. Um, particularly, I think Don LeClaire, who is the CFO, who who engineered that $23 billion home improvement loan, uh, but has sort of a, a brace of personality. You have a great scene with Mark Fields coming across the table, <laughs> dropping an F-bomb, uh, going for him where Bill Ford has to literally physically separate them, right? Yep. So what did Don LeClaire have to say? You know, I don't want to get into sourcing on, on, on the book. The, the, the book was, was conducted... Um, on background interviews with everybody, I made the same deal with everyone I interviewed that uh, that everything that we talked about would not be sourced to a particular individual, and I, I want to respect that because it was the only way I could get some of these executives to talk openly about these these situations. But you know, I think Don's role in Ford's turnaround can't be underestimated either. I mean, he he is the one who pushed who put together this financing package, this $23 billion financing package, right as the gates of the, of the global credit markets were slamming shut. And if Ford didn't have that money, if he hadn't pushed for that, they wouldn't have had the money to pay for Allen's restructuring of the company. They wouldn't have had the money to fund his revolution. Yes, six months later, they wouldn't have been able to get half that money. GM tried to get money six months later right. and wasn't able to do it. Speaking about getting money, yes. there's a fascinating part of the book that I learned from that I had not known that was going on. We, we know that uh, Don LeClaire had been talking with Jerry York, mm -hmm. who represented Kirk Kerkorian, the billionaire investor out of Las Vegas, who became enamored with Ford. He loved what Mulally was doing, wanted to put money into it. But what you pulled out in the book that I found interesting is that Alan Mulally, along with Don LeClaire, were talking to Kirk Kerkorian and Jerry York without telling anybody in the company, including Bill Ford, and that Bill, I don't know if he hit the roof, but he was not happy, and that the board had to even admonish Mulally for talking behind the back of everybody else. That, that, I never knew anything about that. Yeah, that was a, that was a very difficult time in the company, and, and it, it's, uh, you know, th this was a point in which... Uh, you know, you had you had Jerry York and Kirk Kerkorian coming in and buying up shares. As we all know, the, they, they had proven a very disruptive influence in other automakers in the past at, at GM most late. recently. <laughs> yes. yeah. And I think there was a, there was a huge amount of trepidation about about their coming on the scene. And, and I don't think Bill was happy at all when he found out that that Alan and 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 Don had met with Jerry and had not mentioned Tracinda's interest in Ford. Now there's a dis, you know there's a disagreement if you will, between what Jerry York said at that meeting, you know, uh, you know, talking with people, you know, on the Ford side, don't necessarily remember him saying that, uh, that he was interested in buying up shares. He was very clear at the time that, that, that he did say that. Tracinda made that clear in their SEC filings at the time. And yeah, it did go up to the board, and the board the board did you know kind of have to say, look, you know, this is this is not appropriate to to be having these sort of discussions without informing everybody. You know, it's the only time I'm aware because of your yeah. book that the board has had to call Malali on the mat for anything. Yeah, I, I, I think that that it was a rare exception. I think overall, you know, they've been very pleased with this performance. And you know, I you know, they, talking with them, I think most of them felt like it wasn't a major issue. Um, it certainly didn't end up becoming one because because uh, 
when the, the economy as a whole collapsed, uh, Kerkorian uh, had to get out of Ford, as we know, to, to shore up his interest in MGM and his other holdings. So. Did it have an impact on Don McClare? I think it did. I think I think it was one of the things that led to Don's uh, departure from the company. It, it definitely raised a lot of eyebrows and, and did not hurt his credibility. I mean, and, and did not help his credibility with mm -hmm. the board. And that only, as, as I talk about in the book, that that only kind of got worse as 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 the year progressed. The, but, but out of that, they got Lewis Booth in. Out of that, they got Lewis Booth in. And you know, I think that the, it's an interesting thing that you, you mentioned Lewis because, as, as we know, Lewis had just retired from Ford. And you asked the question, John, about where Ford at, is at today. And I honestly think that the departure of Lewis Booth and Derek Kuzak is one of the most positive signs about how much this company has changed. In what way? Well, the, the old Ford, first of all, people didn't make it to the end of their careers. I mean, who 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 is <laughs> You're the, right. Yeah, if, yeah if you, but, but think about it. You know, Lewis Booth is what, 62? 63. 63. Mm -hmm. You know, normally you leave at 65. Derek Cusack's 60. 60. I, I was very surprised to see Cusack leaving. But I haven't heard one shred of, 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 of discussion that it's anything other than, than, you know, moving on. I mean, I, I haven't heard of any. Is it that or are they just good at keeping a lid on it? Yeah, it could be. But I think the other thing is, is that the other thing the old Ford didn't have was a bench. They didn't have people who could come in and fill these roles. And I think that's another testament to how much Ford has changed is that before. Best bench in the business, you could argue. Exactly. And, and you know, before the departure of any one of these individuals would have been a major crisis for Ford. And now it's it's. And now the only departure that would be a major crisis is Alan Mulally. But the question is, you know, how long, Alan is obviously, you know, viewed as a rock star, but at what point does, does Alan remaining at the company hold the company back? Well, I think that's a really good question, Keith. I mean, I think that the, the final test of, of the extent to which Alan has changed Ford's culture is going to be the transition of power at Ford. I mean, as, as we know, Ford has a history of, of creating cults of personality around right. its CEOs. Allen has, has tackled that to some degree by his focus on the team, by pulling other people forward. You know, I think we all remember in the Nasser era, you know, Jack was, was very keen to kind of take credit for things. And, well, Jack and did everything. <laughs> yeah. uh, he, 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 he bought QuickFit, didn't he? Yeah, that was him. Yeah, and uh, Volvo, that was Jack. Yeah, it was all Jack. And, and Alan, as much as he may like the spotlight, is also very quick to pull other people into it with him and, and to push forward people like Kuzak and Mark Fields and, and, and individuals like that. The question is going to be when he actually steps out of that spotlight, you know, is there going to be a seamless transition? You know, is, is there going to be... But don't you think that uh, the process that you get into more in this book than I've seen anywhere else of these, I think they called them PBRs? BPRs. BPRs, yeah. Business Performance Review. Business Planning, planning plan Reviews. Reviews. Okay. Yes, yeah. Well, I did read the book, really. It's acronym. <laughs> but anyway. Alphabet soup. This process that he's put in, very interesting, mm -hmm. of making sure all the top officers in the company meet every single Thursday. He's mm -hmm. developed a whole set of metrics. Everybody's aware of what's going on in the company which never existed before. Don't you think that will help continue the Malali legacy? Well, that's the idea. And I mean, when I put the question to him, you know, about aren't you worried about what's going to happen after you leave? Because let's look at Boeing, for instance. You know, Boeing has run into some problems since he's left. That's what he says is, is I've put this process in place and everyone at the top of this company knows how to implement this process. And if they just adhere to this process, Ford will be all right. The question will be, Will they adhere to that process once he leaves? And only time is going to tell. But it is an amazing tool. And, and, and I, I've had an opportunity to kind of see it in action now. 
And, and, and it, it, it's amazing because everything you've, you've heard about it, 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 it is true. I mean, there's nowhere to hide in these meetings. The data is right there. It's on the wall. It's color-coded. If something's on plan, it's green. If there's an issue with it, it's yellow. If there's a problem, it's red. And, and people don't get into to making excuses about, well, this is red because I had, it, it's just there. It's just there. Okay, it's noted. Everyone knows it's an issue. And then they'll discuss it later. But as you said, Mullally does not suffer fools easily. No. And he apparently has a pretty good detector of said things. Yes. And I think, I think a lot of it is because he's from outside the organization. Because companies develop their own um, style of bull stuff. They actually do, where it, it becomes sort of, it's, it almost becomes a secondary way of doing business. And in Ford, it was about putting those walls up to make sure people didn't know what was happening. So, but the thing is, entropy is a horrible thing in big organizations. It is. And Ford was amazing. I mean, Ford, had, there were literally multiple sets of data that were used routinely in the company when he arrived. I mean, it's kind of funny. I talked with several suppliers during the time I was researching this book, and, you know, they, I heard the same thing from all of them, which is that, they took every, every production estimate that Ford gave them and, and, and just immediately assumed that it wasn't going to come with, it was only going to be 80% of what Ford said. And so they'd price their, their components be, accordingly because they knew they were going to have to throw 20% of them away. Well, I'll bet you they did the same thing with General Motors and Chrysler. Yeah. To a lesser General extent, Motors. though. But yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's something that all three of the Detroit automakers have definitely been guilty of. But Ford was just, was just notorious on this. And they would, they would lie to themselves, too. When, because the company was so compartmentalized before Mulally arrived, you know, the product people would, would fudge the, 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 the sales estimates for a product in order to get the finance people to sign off on. Right. They were notorious for inflating what the, well, how many they were going to sell always, yeah, and, but, and by big numbers. But that did not just happen at Ford. No, no. Hey, we're, we're down to the last minute or so. I'm really curious. Would you ever go write a book again? How much work was it to do this? It was a huge amount of work, um, more work than I've ever done in anything in my life. But I, I loved every minute of it, and I, I actually am already... Uh, working on something else, so we'll see. <laughs> Can you tell us what topic or anything? TBD. Is it automotive? Be determined. TBD. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, but, uh, so it took you about a year to it put did. this together? Yeah. Wow, that's a lot of writing. That's a lot of time even thinking about what to write. Well, it's a lot. You know, the thing, like I said, that, that really surprised me the most is I, I had been covering this co- company intimately. It was my primary beat for, for more than five years, and I was amazed once I started doing interviews from this book how many more interviews I still had to do. So check it out, people. You should be able to find this. It's called American Icon. Uh, you can check it out, too, at Bryce's own website, www.brycehoffman.com. Did I get that right? You got it, John. Thank you very much. Great. Great having you here. Keith Naughton from Bloomberg, Thanks. great having you back on here. And Jim? Thanks, John. Jim Hall, I should say, from 2953 Analytics. Great having you here. And want to thank all of you for having tuned into AutoLine this week. And please, please join us again here next week for another show.